Hello, and welcome to Interlude, Women's Cancer Stories with Dr. Toplinski. I am a medical oncologist, and I specialize in treating women with breast and gynecologic cancer. I started this podcast to share the journeys and experiences of women who are living with cancer. Every week, I bring you stories of incredible women who are all at different stages of their cancer journey. We will talk about anything and everything related to the cancer experience. These women will share with you how cancer has affected them and how they are living life despite it. The information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as any medical advice as each patient has a different treatment and experience. It is meant to create a dialogue. Any personal medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Cancer brings normal life to a halt. It creates an interlude. Let's talk about it. Today, my guest is Krista Campbell. Krista was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 29 years old, and her gynecologist noticed a breast lump. She talks about her diagnosis and subsequent treatment, her decision to proceed with a bilateral mastectomy, and experiences with breast reconstruction, recovery from chemotherapy, and the effect the treatment has had on her body image, her relationship, and her future plans for building a family. So welcome. Thank you for being here. And can you start by just telling us a little bit about who you are? My name is Krista. I'm a 31-year-old active woman. I, I, I've always liked to read and I, I like to do any type of sport, uh, anything from growing up from volleyball, track and field, water polo. Currently, I'm doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu uh, and I do weight training. I'm a former NPC competitor. I, I just like to be competitive. I like to be an athlete and moving and active. So if it has anything to do with the outdoors and competing, uh, you can count me in. That's awesome. And how were you diagnosed with cancer? How did that come about? Uh, ironically, it was during a well woman's. I went in just for, you know, your once a year pap smear. And uh, my gynecologist I've had since I was 15 and said, hey, how long have you had this lump on your right breast? And I told her, I'm not sure what you're talking about. And it was so small. Uh, and I was 29 at the time, and we didn't think anything of it. She, you know, she was like, it's probably a cyst. Checked out with a mammogram and ultrasound. And I told her, well, do I need to be concerned? She goes, no, it's probably a cyst. You have no history of breast cancer. You're 29. Go on vacation, because I was going to get on a plane in three days. So I, I come back, and you know, I follow up with the mammogram, which they refused to do. So we started with an ultrasound. They saw something that wasn't quite right. And then they said, okay, now we'll give you a mammogram. Sure enough, that prompted them to do a needle biopsy. And turned out I had, you know, breast cancer, just of the right breast. So. That's crazy that they wouldn't agree to a mammogram initially. I mean, I understand because you're young and sometimes they can be unreliable. But, you know, when you feel a lump. I was really upset about that because here we are. My, oncolo- my gynecologist is saying, hey, she needs a mammogram. We found a lump. They said, well, we don't do those in people who are as young as her. Uh, insurance doesn't cover it. And sure enough, insurance didn't cover it. I had to pay for it out of pocket. I mean, I got it. It was ridiculous. We had to go through unnecessary stuff and arguments to do an ultrasound only to still have to do the mammogram in the end. And what happened after that point? So you have the ultrasound, you have the mammogram, you find out that you have breast cancer. What was the next step? Next step was lots of meetings with different doctors and more testing to see you know, what, do I have the BRCA1 and 2 genes? Um, 
you know, are we going to do chemo first? Are, you know, we going to do surgery first? So when I got the results on a Thursday, that Friday, you know, that Thursday evening, I called into work, let them know, hey, I won't be in Friday. I have some things going on. And I literally spent all day at the hospital the next day getting a chest x-ray, um, you know, another ultrasound that had to be done, meeting with plastic surgeons, oncologists, all sorts of doctors, figure out what my next steps would be. And how were you dealing with all of this emotionally? Overwhelmed, to be quite honest with you, because <sighs> here you get a call that you have breast cancer and you're like, oh my gosh. They haven't told you what stage you are. You, you have no idea what's going on. And they're telling you that they need all of these tests and blood work done before they can even start to get you a plan. It, it was intense. It was very intense. And I, I literally spent all day at the hospital from 8 a.m. to probably about 6 p.m. But I got all done. I, I met with two different plastic surgeons, uh, two different oncologists, one breast surgeon picked which one I was most comfortable with because uh, there was a couple that I wasn't comfortable with. And I think that's really important. You want to have a team that you're comfortable with. You want to have providers that you feel that you can speak with and that you can speak comfortably with. Exactly. I definitely agree with that. And with the second plastic surgeon, my current plastic surgeon, I remember calling the office and saying, I need to get in to see you right now. And I'm just, and the receptionist is just like, you know, Whenever you're done with your, your blood work, why don't you just walk in the office? We're going to take care of you no matter what. And that immediately right there was like, okay. And then I met with Dr. Shu and I was like, oh my gosh, this man actually cares about me. He cares about, he's listening to my spastic self <laughs> just go on and telling him this whole thing. And um, I, I knew I'd be in good hands with him. So you have to, you have to like your doctors. No, absolutely. So what was the plan that was then laid out for you after you met with all the providers? Well, the initial plan was that we would do a lipectomy, followed up with, um, well, during the lipectomy, we'd do a sentinel lymph node biopsy and possibly chemo along with radiation. But my doctor, I told her I was afraid of reoccurrence. I was afraid of if I just did a lipectomy, what would happen? And she explained to me all of, you know, the pros and the cons and everything else. And she goes, look, how about this? Instead of cutting you open and doing a lipectomy, in case you do want to do a bilateral or a single mastectomy, let's do a sentinel lift node biopsy first. Let's see if the cancer's even gone there yet. So uh, that was our plan. We did the sentinel lift node biopsy. And uh, they took seven nodes. And I'm glad we did. It really helped me get a really good feel for what I want to do because I was node negative. And so she told me, she's like, look, you can get a lipectomy or you can do a single or a bilateral mastectomy. She did not want to do a bilateral. Um, she said the lumpectomy would be fine or a single mastectomy. I was afraid of reoccurrence though. That fear would have eaten at me more than just doing a lipectomy and I didn't want to do radiation. I had read up on it. She had told me all the risks of radiation burns. Uh, cosmetic reconstruction isn't as nice, which was very important to me, uh, as well as just being healthy. Um, I, I was, 
that was my biggest thing was I was scared to death of it coming back in my left or back in my right. So I chose bilateral and she, when I explained everything, my reasoning to her, she agreed with me um, that she would go ahead and do it. And I'm glad we did because after my bilateral, they sent off um, everything to be tested and my oncotype came back as a 57, which was really high. So for and those, some people listening may not know what an oncotype is, but basically, and as you know, it's a molecular test on your tumor that gives you a risk of recurrence, but also kind of helps identify whether you would need chemotherapy or not. I was devastated when I got that news um, because after the bilateral, I had clean margins, um, definitely node negative. I was happy, you know, I was healing. I was at home with my tissue expanders. Four weeks had gone by, and then I get the call on Labor Day weekend. She had called me a really late Friday evening and gave me that oncotype result and told me, you really don't have a choice. You have to do chemo. You have to. And um, that was difficult. Being 29 and already dealing with the loss of sensation from a bilateral and then knowing that you're going to lose all your hair, it really messes with your body image. It was hard enough to wrap my head around the fact that ah, my reconstruction of my breasts would never be like an augmentation. Um, and even if it came close to looking like a normal woman's augmentation, I would never feel them again. It was hard to process that. And here we are, beginning of September, and she goes, I don't want you to wait very long. Did you ever do the fertility preservation? I told her no, because I didn't think I'd need chemo. It's a lot of money to do if you don't have to do chemo. She goes, I'm going to give you one cycle to get this done. We need to get you a portacath installed in your chest, and we need to start this. Here's another rush, 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 just like when I was diagnosed. It's hard. My insurance didn't cover it. My employer chose not to have that covered in the policy that they provide their employees, which I found out is very common. A lot of employers in Texas, they, they, they will offer that coverage for their employees, and mine opted out of it. Okay. And I, I was upset about that. So I had found a program through Livestrong, and I was luckily approved for all the medications and one year of storage okay. for embryo storage. And we had to come up with the rest of it. And luckily we were able to come up with the rest of it when it came to the anesthesia and the procedure. And I did all the shots in the belly, which were super uncomfortable. I went in that day, had the retrieval and I ended up uh, with four embryos and eight eggs. That's so, great. That's a lot. Yeah. For one cycle, yeah. that's really good. I was really happy about that. Um, we had been trying to get pregnant before I was diagnosed, and we had been trying for probably eight months with no luck. And I thought something was wrong with me, honestly. Uh, but they were telling me before the cancer, no, no, it's fine. You were on birth control since I'd been 15. Mm -hmm. You know, this, it's normal. It, it just happens to women all the time. And I kind of think it was God's way of saying, no, you don't need to be pregnant right now. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, um, I think maybe a sign. You know, I think our yeah. bodies kind of give us these signs that we don't know what they mean at the time. Exactly. And I'm, I'm really glad 
now that I didn't get pregnant because mm-hmm. my cancer was so aggressive and I, I wouldn't want to be put in that situation basically. Exactly. So we finished up with the fertility and got the portacath installed and started chemo. And what chemo regimen did you get? I had a four rounds of what they call red devil, um, every two weeks. And then after that, I had uh, 12 rounds on a weekly basis of Taxol. Okay. They have longer, more complicated names, but no, a lot of right, women, yeah. yeah, a lot of women right. in the groups, um, they tend to nickname their, their chemo regimens <laughs> and it, you know, I kept a journal of it. You know how a lot of women say they forget how horrible it is to yeah. have childbirth and mm-hmm. they block it out. I think that's the same with chemo. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Yeah, because I tell people, I'm like, it actually wasn't that bad. I remember being tired and uh, I remember being a little loss of appetite. But then I go back and read my journal and my symptoms that I had to write down. I'm like, oh man, I couldn't get out of bed. I woke up nauseous that many times. Like, the things that you block out. And how was it like, I mean, besides the fatigue and the nausea, was there anything else that stands out for you that you remember? I remember the hot flashes that started. Um, Besides being nauseous and not having much of an appetite, I remember when I started Taxol especially, I would get hot flashes. Um, my, My fingernails and my toenails started pulling up from their bed, the beds of my hands. Um, I was gaining weight. I've always had a fast metabolism. And here I am gaining 10, 15 pounds and I'm eating the same. I'm actually still exercising throughout my whole chemo, throughout this whole thing. As soon as I was cleared, I would, I was working out always. Now you're Uh, pretty, you said you were an athlete. Was, were your workouts the same as they had been or did you tone it down a little bit? I did tone it down. Um, instead of, weight training it was a lot more cardio mm-hmm. and yoga okay. uh, to regain moment uh, motion from my bilateral there wasn't so much weight lifting um i just didn't have the strength to do what i used to do but i wanted to keep moving at least okay. and it worked out really well for me but chemo chemo took a huge toll on my body um i just didn't feel like me anymore i felt very sluggish and i felt and definitely looked like a completely different person of course and were you able to work during that time i was i worked the entire time um i only took off you know partial days for doctor's appointments i was off for four weeks after my mastectomy and throughout whole chemo went to work every single day what did you do for work I'm a paralegal, so I, I don't do lifting or anything else. I sit at a desk all day and work on papers, basically. So a lot of people talk about chemo brain and the chemo fog that happens. You know, did you experience that, and how did that affect what you do on a daily basis? I agree. I did have some chemo brain. I would have to uh, put a lot of things in my calendar or sticky notes to remind myself because it's almost. Um, when you multitask and you're thinking about one thing and setting your keys over here and you forget where you set your keys, that's what it felt like when it came to work. Okay. I, I would be multitasking like I would normally do before cancer, before chemo, 
with no issues. But now it became a little more difficult to just focus and remember. Um, it's gotten better since treatment ended. Um, my last chemo treatment was 13 months ago. So I take vitamins and supplements to help out, but I think just really time and challenging my own memory, doing Sudoku and crosswords, really just trying to make my brain refire Mm -hmm. itself, I guess, has helped. Yeah, no, I think that's, we tend to understate that a little bit, but chemo brain is a really difficult side effect the younger that you are, especially, and it takes a fair amount of time to recover from that. So chemo finished, and what happened after that? After chemo was over with, um, we did reconstruction because for nine months I had tissue expanders. They refused to do the exchange during chemo because my, my immune system was so low. It would just, it wouldn't be a smart decision. So they gave me about three months to rebuild my immune system. And we did my first exchange where we just took out the expanders, put in the implants and did some fat grafting. Um, I wasn't 29 with no kids. I wasn't a candidate for the flap surgery. I don't have any extra belly or Mm -hmm. anything else to recreate. So implants and fat grafting was the suitable choice for me. And it was great. As soon as those expanders are out of your chest, oh man, it's like, I don't know. It's like having bricks pulled off your chest or something. You don't realize how uncomfortable they are until they're out of you. And honestly, I think that might've been a little bit worse than the mastectomy because of the fat grafting. I had so much nerve blockers in me and nerve injections after my mastectomy and they cut your nerves that I didn't, I was, I was in pain after the mastectomy, but he did fat grafting from my abdomen and my inner thighs. Okay. You don't realize how much you use your core for until you come out of that and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't move. (laughs) What's going on? Yeah, I took a week off work. I did take a week off work for that because I I couldn't move. That was painful. Um, And we ended up doing two more surgeries because the first one wasn't enough fat. Okay. And so we did a second fat grafting surgery three months after that. Uh, we took for my legs and then we did one last one three months later um, to fill up the upper poles and we took a little bit from my abdomen and thighs as well and this time it didn't hurt he didn't take as much from my abdomen as he did the first surgery how do you feel it looks now or how do you feel about your body image i that's a complicated question because i'm very happy on the one point, because if I wear a bikini top or something, I look like a normal woman unless you do like I bend over or something and I have some rippling. Um, I don't know. It's on the other hand, though, it's just it's difficult. It's it's not the same. I don't know. It's 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 hard to answer that question because I, I'm getting there. I guess I should say. And it doesn't uh, happen overnight. It takes a lot of time to kind of come back. And along yeah. with that, did chemotherapy put you into menopause? And how was the recovery from that sluggish feeling going? 
chemo did put me in the menopause. We had given me Lupron shots before um, I started chemo and then throughout chemo, as well as letrozole and Zometa, um, Zometa, sorry, Zometa once every six months. And that affected me as well. I still wasn't able to drop the weight as quickly, um, even after I stopped chemo. And it affects your body image because not only you're getting hot flashes, your libido goes down, you're regrowing your hair, uh, you're regrowing your fingernails and your toenails, everything. And even though your breasts are reconstructed, they don't look like your breasts. You can't feel them. They don't look, they don't feel like you can't manipulate them as well. It's, I'm 80% happy with my body because of it though. and. Every day it gets a little bit better where I learn to accept it because honestly my body could have rejected the implants. So I'm, I'm very blessed that I have a great cosmetic uh, outcome from it, but at the same time it's, I'm still sad about it, even though I shouldn't be. No, I think it's okay. I think you get to be sad. It's a, a loss of what it was and it's something new and there's no rule that says you have to be happy about it all the time. That's true, but there's some other breast cancer girls that I'm friends with, uh, that I volunteer with, and some of them had really botched reconstruction or their bodies rejected them. And here I am, I'm like, man, I can't say anything. I can't complain. My, my breasts look like breasts and clothing. I'm healthy. I'm in remission. Uh, I have hair again. And there's some women who haven't fared as well as me. I agree. The key word really is you're healthy. You don't have any evidence of disease right now and that we absolutely have to celebrate every day. So you mentioned that, you know, you have some breast cancer friends. Where did you meet them? I mean, you're diagnosed with breast cancer at a really early age. I was trying to figure out who could I speak to about it because when I was in the chemo room, everyone's kind of geriatric. They're all older. Same with some of the message boards that you can Google. And Breast Cancer Org was one of them. And I was like, man, everyone's older than me. They've already had their children. They don't have the same questions I do. Like, can I still have children a year? Do I need to wait five years after being on hormones? And I came across um, Living Beyond Breast Cancer, realized that they had a young adv advocacy uh, page for women who are 45 and younger. And I'm reading through their boards and I joined their Facebook um, Young Initiative page. And here is this whole horde of women just like me that are at different stages. You know, they're one through four. They have kids. They don't have kids. And I was able to find answers and I was able to just feel what they're feeling and we can help each other. And I, I found a community of women that I could speak to that understood me and it helped out so much um, because people don't understand you may know your friends your whole life but they just they don't get it no they can't get it right they haven't gone through it so they're not the ones losing their hair and they want to support you but it's a very different experience for them who was your support during chemo uh, my boyfriend was, he, we've been together five years this May. So we were only together about three when I was diagnosed. Um, I gave him an out. I was like, Hey, this isn't what you signed up for. 
you you don't you don't have to feel guilted to stay with me but um he was in it for the long haul he he was downstairs on the third floor all up on the fifth arguing with him with my id saying she needs a chest x-ray today she's up there doing this right now you're gonna get her in today um (laughs) he he is pretty awesome that's wonderful yeah yeah i got lucky to get him and his family um his mom was the one who actually flew down from New York to take care of me after my mastectomy. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's yeah. really nice. <laughs> that is really nice. I, I got lucky. Did it put a strain on your relationship in any way? And you don't have to answer that. Oh, no, I don't mind answering it at all. Um, yes and no. With him, he was fine. He didn't look at me any differently. He didn't treat me any differently. He still thought it was beautiful and sexy. But he was, okay, if it has stitches in it, I'm not touching it. Because <laughs> he didn't know if he'd hurt me. For me, it was harder because I, I'm a visual creature, you know. I see myself and I'm like, ugh, he's not going to like the way I look. I can't do this. I, don't, I can't be intimate with you. And I felt bad for him at times, but he was very understandable. Like, if you're not comfortable, you're not comfortable. So it wasn't him. It was me who had to be comfortable with myself and he helped me along the way with just know you're beautiful you're fine or I'd try to wear the wig he's like take the wig off it's hot you you look beautiful you're fine he helped me a lot get over those issues and how was the wig experience any tips for people who are just newly diagnosed and debating should they get a wig should they wear head scarves hats honestly it's whatever you feel I guess um you know, with me, I can't tie scarves. I'm terrible at it. When it was just for the gym or running errands, I would just rock the baldness or go with a ball cap. It was nice because when I got diagnosed in June of 2017, my chemo was from October to February when it was cold. So it was nice wearing a wig then because it kept my head warm. <laughs> if your insurance will cover it, get the wig. Um, if it doesn't, do what honestly makes you feel comfortable. There are so many organizations that do the one free wig or Amazon's actually a great place for them too. Oh, that's, uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I got one free wig from Visible Changes in Houston. I went in there. They brought out all the wigs and I chose one and they actually cut and styled it to shape my face. That's great. Yeah. And that was my work wig because working at a law firm, I didn't want to have to answer the same questions every day. And that's why I chose to wear a wig a lot of the times, like with things like that, with when it came to work or um, certain social events. I, I didn't want to have to do a million questions. Sometimes I just didn't want to talk about it. I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be viewed as a normal human, not one that was sick and needed to be pitied, because that's what I got was pity. And uh, along with that, how did you share the news with your coworkers. Did you tell a lot of people or was it kind of kept quiet at work? It was kind of kept quiet. We have three floors and about 80 to 100 employees. It's a medium-sized firm. Some of the close coworkers, I just walked down to breakfast and I was like, oh, hey, I got some news from y'all and I have cancer. <laughs> uh, just kind of just put it out there. I'm not one to beat around the bush, I guess. With my bosses, the attorneys and groups I work with, I let them know, you know, what was going on, let human resources know. And they were just, hey, whatever you need, we're here for you. They worked with my schedule. 
That's really good. I think it's important to let human resources know a lot of people don't want to get them involved, but that's what they're there for. Exactly. I mean, they're the ones who helped me with my short-term disability paperwork because I'd never done something like that. And I didn't know what the heck to do after my mastectomy. Like, hey, I still need to get paid. How do I do this? So. Did you have any financial difficulties with insurance coverage or affording chemotherapy or, you know, affording anything during that, the treatment process? I was lucky. Um, I chose the high deductible plan, which most people don't go for. but after you reach your deductible, you're not responsible for anymore as long as it's within your coverage network. If I hadn't done that, I don't know where I'd be, honestly, financially. My deductible was $4,000. Once it was met, I didn't pay for a single thing. The only issues I had was they denied my mastectomy initially. Uh, my surgery was coming up. They sent me a letter saying, hey, this is an elective cosmetic procedure. <laughs> What? Not really. No, not, nobody, nobody opts to, to do this. And I was in the process of going to send the appeal when my company changed insurance providers okay. for us. So the new insurance provider um, was going to cover it. Hands down, no questions. Because I don't have to send an appeal saying, hey, have you read the Cancer Act laws? And, and that's the last thing you want to be dealing with as you're getting ready for surgery is to deal with insurance companies and appeals and finances. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, even now, um, that same previous health insurance company, which I don't recommend to anybody, they'd sent me a bill for anesthesia for, you know, three grand or something. And I said, well, my deductible was met. I'm like, well, the mastectomy was an elective procedure. You know, it's not covered. Like, wait, that doesn't involve you anymore. Why are you? So So here we are two years after the fact, and I'm still arguing and sending in appeals. That's Um, so frustrating. It's it's ridiculous. But I didn't have financial issues when it came to that because of my high deductible plan. There was just a few things that weren't covered, like the fertility preservation, which Livestrong helped out with. And then between mine and my boyfriend's funds, we were able to cover that. Um, the Mona Lisa procedure, because a lot of women don't like to talk about it, is that when you're in menopause, especially chemically induced menopause, you get like vaginal atrophy. And it was to the point where I, was, I couldn't be intimate with my boyfriend anymore. And I went ahead and had that Mona Lisa procedure done, and it's not covered. Can you so, talk about what the Mona Lisa procedure is for those who don't know? Oh, yeah. The Mona Lisa procedure, it's basically like this laser beam that they'll insert into you and it pulsates to regenerate the tissue. Because my cancer was estrogen positive, I can't do estrogen creams. I can't do anything. We have to shut that completely down. And because of that, I had such terrible vaginal dryness that it was like sandpaper. Um, Lubricants were not working for us. Uh, Prescription lubricants. Uh, were not working for us. And I was at a loss until my gynecologist said, hey, this procedure would probably work for you. It'll regenerate your vaginal tissue. It'll help bring back some lubrication. And it may not be 100%, and it's not. It's about 90% for me. So now I can use lube and it works. But it, it, was, a, it was a game changer for my personal and intimate life with my boyfriend. And how many times did you do it? Three times, um, three different times set apart six weeks from the first. 
and it would take maybe five minutes. I'd go in, five minutes later, I'd walk out. I'd be a tiny bit sore, um, almost like if you got stung by a bee. And afterwards, it'd be fine. You know, no intercourse for about a week. And um, I mean, the, the change is instantaneous. It's, it was really nice to have a little bit of normalcy after the, the roller coaster had been through. Of course. I mean, you want to feel feminine and you want to be intimate. And I think it's a great opportunity to do that. How Except, is it now? Are you still on the Letrozole and the Lupron? I actually just got off both of those uh, March 5th. Okay. Um, I was on them for a year, but I wanted to ha- try and have kids. Um, I'll be 32 this year. My boyfriend will be 35 in a week. And like I said, before cancer, we were trying to start a family and we're both still young. However, I, we want kids. We want a family. I didn't want to wait five years or 10 years like they recommended to me. Well, there are studies actually now looking at kind of being on hormone therapy for a short term, coming off to have children and then going back on. Exactly. And I think that was recently at the the breast cancer symposium in San Antonio, I think is where they found some of that new evidence. Mm that it's fine whether you still have the same chances, whether it's what, one, five or 10 years. And as soon as I found that out, I was like, okay, I told you I only wanted to wait one or two years. I'm just, here's my one year mark. I want to get off this medication. She said, get off the medication. That's fine. Wait at least three months. Mm -hmm. Just, just to be sure. Yeah. You want it all out of your system. Yeah. And then start trying to have kids. If I can't conceive naturally, uh, by September, I'm going to do the frozen embryo transfer. If nothing works, if frozen embryo transfer doesn't work, if natural conception doesn't work, and I haven't conceived by March of 2020, I have to get back on my hormone suppressants for another year. She doesn't want me off them for a long time since I had such a high oncotype, high aggr- aggressive cancer. Well, exactly, because if you then get pregnant, then you're off them for the duration of the pregnancy and after the pregnancy and so forth. Exactly. It's just kind of playing with fire at that point, she thinks. How do you feel about starting a family given that you did have breast cancer at a young age? Do you have a fear of recurrence and how have you coped with that? I do have a fear of recurrence. Uh, I actually got back today from having an ultrasound done of both breasts because a couple of lumps had popped up and I was like, well, I have no breast tissue. What are these lumps? And she was in there for me 45 minutes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's taking so many pictures. It's back. It's back. That's all I'm thinking is it's back. Turns out they're oil cysts from the trauma of the surgery. Mm -hmm. She's like, these pop up. And I was like, it's been two years. She's like, it doesn't matter. It's just that from the trauma of the surgery, they'll pop up. So that was a relief. But being so young, that's my fear. I'm afraid that even though I took an aggressive route. I did everything right. I'm not a smoker. I'm not a drinker. I'm an athlete. Mm-hmm. I still got cancer at 29. There's all the good things that we can do, but at the end of the day, sometimes cancer just doesn't care. And it's bad exactly. luck. It, it, yeah, it's just bad luck. And I, I want to live a long life. I want to raise a family and enjoy every moment, soak it up. But it scares me. Um, that one day something's going to happen and it's not going to be stage two. Like I was, it's going to be stage four because they told me we're not going to know if it's back by doing blood work. She's like, I'm not going to send you for unnecessary scans and, you know, 
she's like, when we find it, it's more than likely going to be stage four. And I hope it never happens. And that's all we can hope for. I think you have to live your life and have a family and keep living. I, I agree. I mean, cancer changes your whole perspective of things. It, if anyone had to get it, I'm kind of glad it was me versus another loved one of mine. Because I, I like who I am now. I liked who I was before, but I look at things differently. I appreciate things more. and I feel like a, I'm a kinder person because of it. I, I, I know what matters now in life. And it's nice to be able to know that at a young age. Very rarely at such a young age are you faced with such big life changes like this. And it, it yeah. does put a lot of things into perspective. So I'd like to wrap up just asking a few more questions. Is there any advice you would give to someone who's just starting out, who's newly what? diagnosed, who's overwhelmed? What would you say or what would you recommend? I would recommend that, one, they stay off Google. <laughs> um, two, they need to be comfortable with all their doctors. They don't need to be rushed into anything. A lot of doctors tend to do that, saying we need to do X, Y, and Z right now. No, no. Let, let's talk about this first. First, let's make sure that I'm okay with this person. Um, maybe I need to meet with two oncologists or three oncologists and make a choice from there. Discuss all the options. They don't need to be afraid to have them repeat all the options and talk about it until they're blue in the face. This is their bodies. This is their life. I've talked to a lot of women who felt like they were rushed into a decision and they would have done something differently if they had had time to breathe and process. So that's my advice to women is don't be pushed in anything. Make sure what you're doing is what you want to do for your life. I think it's important to know what you want and to advocate and to not be afraid to stand up for what you feel is important to you. I agree. And I think a lot of women feel that they're bothering their doctor by asking the questions repeatedly and I try to tell them it's our job. It's what we're here for, to help you. And if I have to repeat it 10 times, then that's how many times I'll repeat it. Exactly. I made my doctor repeat many things because I had a notebook and paper. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. I don't know what that jargon means. Let's, mm -hmm. I need to write it down real yeah. quick. That way yeah. I could go home and read over my notes and just process. What do I want to do? What's mm -hmm. going to work for me? Yeah, because it's very overwhelming when you hear it the first time. You have to kind of come back and sit on it, sleep on it, and then say, yep, this is good for me or it's not. Is there any pet peeve or anything that happened during treatment? I guess the one where it's just like, I got a lot of, oh, you're so young, that pity. It's just, a, it gets the waterworks going because you're right. I'm too young to be here. I should not be here. And uh, it just, it bothered me because it's instant pity. And like, I don't want people to pity me. I just give me the treatment plan. Let's figure out what we're going to do. But I don't need to be pitied. I'm stronger than this. It's so true. Uh, you want to just push forward and get it done. Any products that you use that you would recommend? Let's see. For products, I like to stick to, I guess with like during chemo, it was really hard to stay hydrated, um, skin-wise especially. I don't do fragrance stuff anymore. All that frilly bath and body works. I really stick to, you know, the Avenos and the Lubriderms because your skin just gets so dry. I would drink a lot of water. So I use a lot more organic uh, fragrance-free items now. 
same with my diet. I, I ate pretty healthy and slightly organic, but I really do drink more, uh, sorry, eat more of an organic diet now. Last question. If you could sum all this up in one word, what would that be? Enlightening. I like that. Yeah. It's enlightening. I like that. It's a, and it's positive. It is. I've learned a lot about myself, about cancer that I didn't know before, and what I can do to give back to other women who were newly diagnosed and what I can give back to my own life, to the ones that surround me. This was a good experience from something bad. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I think this is yet one other way you're giving back by sharing your story because I know that a lot of women are going to find it really helpful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Krista. I can't wait to share more powerful stories with you over the coming weeks and months. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating and review over on iTunes, as that is the best way to grow the show. You can head on over to my Twitter and Instagram pages at Dr. Toplinski for more podcast information and cancer news and updates. Please visit www.interludecancerstories.com for today's show notes and links to helpful resources. Finally, a big thank you to all of my listeners and guests so far for all of the support in making this podcast happen. I'll see all of you next week.